Hello and welcome to season two, episode one of the Book Baby Spotlight podcast, your home for conversations with authors, illustrators, editors, and other industry insiders from the world of self-publishing. I'm Sam Saddam, and today I'm joined by Chad Hinson. Hey, Sam. How you doing? I'm good. Excited to be here? Yeah, man. Super excited. During season one of the Book Baby Spotlight, I had a ton of interesting guests. Uh, Please check out all those episodes. They're in the backlog there. Uh, But the underlying question from March on uh, was, of course, the pandemic. Uh, From design turn times to Amazon deprioritizing books to the topics covered in the books themselves uh, and indie bookstores trying to remain above water. So, Chad, what do you see in the advertising space? I think that right now is the best time to publish a book if you've been you know, waiting to write that book or you've had that book and didn't know exactly when would be the best time to put it out. Uh, right now, the, the digital space for purchasing anything is so high that people will be most likely to buy your book in this day and age. Okay. And why, why do you think that? I mean, we're all at home, you know, we're, there's nothing else we can do. We can't go out. The typical bookstores aren't really open for you to sit down and, and enjoy a book. So most people that are avid book readers are searching online for the next read that's going to get them through the pandemic. Have you seen it change the way people are trying to advertise at all? Yeah, I mean, people are putting a lot more money into their advertising, which is great. And, you know, there's always the, as far as changes in advertising, the, the I- iOS thing that's going on. Go back to that. What's the iOS thing? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so, so pretty much what's happening is iOS, which is in, in control of like iPhones and all Mac products, they are putting... Firstly, they're putting a message in front of all of their users as soon as they open the phone that allows them to opt out to being uh, tracked alongside the Internet. Uh, What this pretty much does is allow advertisers to serve you ads based off of your interests. So I'm sure you've one day you may have looked up a pair of sandals online and next thing you know, you're across social media or across a different website and you see a bunch of advertisements about sandals. And that's because... (laughs) or worse. (laughs) Definitely. It it could get worse than that. Um, But yeah, that's because advertisers typically are able to track your interest and provide you ads uh, that are similar to that. But now what what iOS is doing is making it easier for a lot of people to opt out and have more control over their privacy, uh, which will make it a lot harder for advertisers to advertise straight to you. From a distribution end, uh, BookBaby and our wholesale partners are, are running more or less on time. Amazon's been struggling to keep up for a bit. Uh, I don't think it was as bad as we really expected for the holidays. Uh, you know, last year and the year before that, we had stories of Amazon trucks that are you know miles long outside their warehouses, and I don't think we had as much of that this year. I'm wondering if that's uh, because they were kind of spacing out that uh, that chaos throughout the year or what, uh, but they basically route and schedule their own pickups. Uh, so from the book babies end, we're just kind of having the books available as soon as, as soon as Amazon is ready to come pick them up. I think that's a, that's a, a good thing that we have bookshop in that case. Yeah. And we're not depending on, on Amazon for that, uh, with bookshop, we're not really on any external vendors. Of course, readers buy our author's books directly from us and we're able to give people the largest royalty rate. What type of books are being published right now? So here at Book Baby, uh, we are a self-publisher, as you know. We publish books in every genre. Uh, but there has been an increase in isolation journals, self-help, mental health type books. Uh, one of the most interesting stories I came across was a nine-year-old, uh, Prisha Hadou, 
who published with us? Well, there's a lot of stuff in my book. There is, as it says, it says right here, it has practical online schooling, hobbies, and a lot of stuff related to COVID-19. So in this book, you're going to see basically a lot of my perspective. That's why the title is Pandemic 2020, a nine-year-old perspective. It's a lot of my emotions, my feelings, and I feel like it really expresses me just naturally. So when you read this book, you're going to see a kid, a nine-year-old, now 10, um, telling you, you know, suitable tips and just embracing the power. I did use a portion of my book to donate things like just a past, maybe like a week or two ago, I donated 1,050 meals to Dare to Care Food Bank from my book sales and also $500 to Team Kentucky and more known for Andy Bashir's so um, to help people in COVID-19 related organizations. So I look forward to doing more um, donations. Did your parents offer you editorial direction or anything like that along the way? No, it was really, I sat down on my dining table and I started writing a book. I started writing paragraphs, which formed into a book. And then it just kept going through. And then when it was read, um, I went through it, but like not much editing at all. And even if it was some, then my parents would know about it. But for now, yeah, no, no, not much editing at all. Did your teacher give you any extra credit when you told her that you had a book that you'd written? She was very happy about it. Um, And even if she would, I would tell her not to. It's something that was just a part that added to my resume, that added to my career, that added to me. So I don't think I should be getting extra credit for something that I did from my heart. Um, But I'm always ready for challenges, so. Her book really was really interesting to me. One, just because she was the, the youngest author, I think, that we have on Book Baby, if I'm not mistaken, right? As far as I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and just the way she was able to articulate how she, you know, essentially just wrote about her life story during the pandemic, I thought was was what was the major selling point in her book. It's like she's nine years old and she's able to really, you know, give you a nine-year-old perspective of what she's going through. Dude, she seemed more organized than most of the adults that we talk to on a regular basis. Yeah. So, so let me ask you, if Prisha or more like their parents uh, were to purchase a Facebook ad from us, where would you start your targeting? Children's literature would be, you know, the general area. So, yeah, I would start there. Children's literature and parents of kids anywhere from like five to nine years old. I would assume that they will want you know, their their child to experience the pandemic in a more articulate way, similar to how Prisha did. And so that would be my base targeting right there. Parents who also enjoy children's literature. What about uh, as far as further interests are outside of demographics? Yeah, I would have to look more into the exact perspective on the pandemic. Because, uh, you know, as you know, with Facebook, it's really hard to target coronavirus. Uh, that's that's a big no-no. But if we can target her interest and her specific perspective on the pandemic, I think that would be very effective. Right. I think uh, with Facebook, they're trying to avoid having ads from people who aren't uh, experts on the, the pandemic and, and on diseases in general so that, that they're not uh, liable for, for spreading uh, any misinformation or, or fake news based on uh, the books that they get submitted to them. It, it's very important, I think, and you just nailed it on the head, to write from not a uh, 
from your perspective of the pandemic and not from like a scientific perspective if you're not in science. And so that's why I think Prish's book does so well. It's the fact that she's not just talking about the nuts and bolts of the pandemic. She's talking about her experience alongside of some of the other books that um, we also were able to look into specifically. We got another one going completely different direction. Uh, another one we came across. And I should give proper credit out to Amanda on our CS team who brought this book to my attention. Uh, that was Henry Cox. His book mm. is Deceit of the Soul. Well, the the story basically uh, was was be looking at all the issues in 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 the media and uh, other uh, sources, saying there are too many unanswered questions and things were not adding up. I have enough of a even though I'm a, a lawyer litigator by background, of course, uh, we get into expert witnesses all the time. I have a lot of expertise in other areas academically. I go back into statistics and and uh, dyna- human dynamics and and that sort of thing as well as science, biology, chemistry, but uh, things just weren't making sense. And and we're getting inconsistent answers to things that shouldn't be inconsistent. Everybody, the, the, anytime somebody <laughs> says, oh, we need to listen to the science, that's usually the person that's not following the science. And so as I started looking into it, I said, well, you know, there's a lot of stuff and it's really obvious why uh, it's not being talked about because uh, too many people um, have have too much invested in it, whether you know politics, governments, and that sort of thing, and it's just like uh, litigation as well. Uh, the case that you read is not all the underpinnings of the story and how the litigation got there. It's always what I call the story behind the story is the most intriguing. And so I said, well, let me start putting this information together, and uh, and and put it in a fictional form, one that doesn't upset people as much, but it, it's based upon a, a lot of factual information. Uh, and the deceit of the soul, uh, I, I tried to develop characters that people could get into and uh, watch how, how people struggle with their existential existence, uh, of who they are, who they believe they are, why they are. And now they're confronted with realities and they had to figure out what directions to go when there are no good choices. This was a very interesting book because, you know, in comparison to Prisha, who was writing about her experience during the pandemic, Henry Cox wrote a a fiction novel similarly about the pandemic. And I thought it was great that he was able to uh, write from the perspective of other people so well while not really taking a hard stance on anything and not really going too leftist or too right wing. He kind of just thought about the people. And I wrote in my notes right here, right to your strengths. And his strength, he mentioned, is that he's a lawyer. He's very analytical. He studies people. And uh, he really wrote to his strengths and was able to depict those different characters in his book. I thought that was great. So I thought the really interesting part of Henry's idea uh, as far as creating the book started with a a real idea, a real setting uh, in Wuhan, and then kind of builds off from there what he imagines is happening. And then, uh, you know, some of it was correct. It turns out, uh, you know, he was correct in his guessing. I'm not sure how much of that was guessing, uh, you know, just making things up versus kind of making an informed decision based on uh, the news that he would, he was seeing coming out. Um, But I was definitely curious to how much of his book uh, was sensationalized. I was just going to say, man, when it, when it comes from a marketing perspective that, you know, marketing really is supposed to imitate, you know, human interaction. And I think with a lot of these books, especially during the pandemic, people 
want to be, you know, taken out of reality right now, out of like the pandemic stay at home situation where we're bored and we have nothing to do. And I think his book does a great job of addressing the times that we're in and then kind of taking you into a world to where you can sort of escape what's going on around us. I think that's what makes this book so strong and easily marketable as well. Uh, so what, what would be some things you would look at for trying to promote that book? Off of just looking at it first glance, for the Air Force, the fact that he talks about, you know, Royal Air Force commanders and things like that. I'm sure other people who have experienced that would like that. Um, kind of this, this is kind of like a military sci-fi. So like thriller fiction, people who, who enjoy thriller fictions or military fiction. And it seems suspense. So if I can find like a nice audience, a sizable audience for like suspense novels or just suspense in general, I, I think that they would really enjoy that as well. So one of the other books we have here to talk about is Christy Nelson. Uh, her book is Masked Heroes, and she is an artist who did portraits of all of these different first responders. So I'll let her tell you about it. So I'm a former art teacher, and um, I stay home right now with my little with my little ones. I have three kids, five and under, and we do a lot of sidewalk chalk. So especially during the pandemic, we started um, coloring outside a lot and writing positive mes- messages on the sidewalk and the driveway just to spread um, some positivity throughout our neighborhood. My next door neighbor is a COVID. She was working the COVID unit here in Houston. And uh, my sister-in-law is a labor and delivery nurse in Houston. And during that, the PPE um, new attire that they had was just so different and so wild for them. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of healthcare workers were sending portraits of themselves to family members or posting them on social media as just their new norm. And I guess that was their way of expressing and journaling what they were experiencing. So um, they sent that, they sent to my neighbor and my sister-in-law both sent me a picture of themselves in the same week. When they did that, it was just on my brain to draw them. You know, I would see portraits, it was different. So I drew um, a portrait of a nurse wearing a mask on the sidewalk and wrote thankful for these superheroes. Um, After that, another neighbor who uh, is a runner, she is, a uh, MD Anderson nurse and she ran past the sidewalk and posted a a picture and a big uh, post about it on our neighborhood Facebook. And after that, I just realized the impact that had on um, the essential workers and also the community recognizing that they need to be thankful for everything that they're going through. So I drew my sister-in-law like actual portrait of her, not just the sidewalk chalk. And I gave it to her as a gift. And I did the same thing for my neighbor. Um, After that, I had a lot of requests. They put it on Facebook and a lot of requests started coming in from all over the place, from New York, Florida, um, all over the United States to draw these healthcare workers. It was very hard and very time consuming (laughs) because, I have a full life with my own kids, but I felt compelled like no other project has ever compelled me to do this as a way to shed some kind of light and unity in this situation. And Book Baby was amazing. Um, All the sites that I looked into, they just didn't offer everything that Book Baby offered. 
And um, I love the book. It's, it turned out beautifully. And what, what was that? What were the services that you decided, you know, I can't do without this. I got to go with book baby. <laughs> sure. The global distribution was a big point. I do like that. Um, I also like that you have your own, you have your own book baby webpage, which, which is great. And that book baby doesn't take all of the royalties like other companies do. Um, so many and so much of it, such a huge percentage of it anyways. Uh, a big part of this book was to give back. So 30% of all of my sales go to um, the Brave of Heart Fund, which gives back to the uh, families of people, of healthcare workers who lost their life at, to COVID-19. So um, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't getting a dollar per book if possible because that's just losing out for all of the help that could be aided to that foundation. Right, so how do you promote an art book like this? I mean, it's, it's no surprise. There are a lot of people who enjoy picture books, people who enjoy art books. I would start there. And then judging by her book in particular, she talks a lot about first responders. And so there's, there's a golden spot somewhere right in the middle where there's like, people who are interested or are first responders who also like picture books. And I think that right there, without even having to be too complicated, would uh, would sell her book tremendously. Or even just a family of first responders, if that's yeah. possible. Uh, so it's kind of like a Venn diagram, right? So you have all of these different targeting things to go for. Everybody fits all this different criteria. And then Facebook matches it up after we tell them what to do, right? And the, the expertise goes in kind of knowing knowing these things, knowing how to work with Facebook, knowing what interests are out there to be targeted, and also being familiar enough with the book and the author to connect the author to the audience, I think is where the expertise comes in and what we're, according to our, our very happy customers and clients, really good at. All right, that is what we have to do. Uh, so we have some other interesting uh, marketing ideas coming from uh, one of our authors. I'm not sure if she just got lucky uh, with her plans, but she sent us some hand sanitizer packages with the cover of her book <laughs> custom printed on. Mm. And uh, I don't know how she did that. Right. <laughs> that. That was fantastic. And uh, kept me safe for the first few weeks of, of coronavirus here. Yeah. Like you said, who knows if she got lucky or not, but that was amazing marketing. And I'm sure uh, anybody who got that package, uh, what went to go at least check out her book. So I'm sure it worked for, worked out for her. Right. You have any book recommendations for the audience today? Yeah. Uh, my little sister, she actually just gave me a book for Christmas. It's called manage your day to day, build your routine, find your focus and sharpen your creative mind. It's by Scott Belsky. All right. Using that to increase your productivity for book baby. <laughs> no, nah, definitely. Just going through all these emails and projects we're working on has definitely helped me stay productive. And I've got Kristen Eberhard's Becoming a Democracy, How We Can Fix the Electoral College, Gerrymandering, and Our Elections. And, you know, regardless of a partisan alignment, she makes the case that fixing these institutional issues will help make government more representative and hopefully more functional. That's a laudable goal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so definitely check that one out on Bookshop. But hey, this seems like a good place to call it. We'll be back soon with more of the Book Baby Spotlight podcast. Be sure to rate and subscribe and follow and like us on whatever platform you're on. Share a link with a friend, surely of someone in your life with a manuscript collecting dust in a desk drawer somewhere. And I want to thank all of our authors who 
whose books can all be found on store.bookbaby.com. That's Prisha Hedu, Christy Nelson, and Henry Cox. Thank you all for your time. And thank you, Chad, for co-hosting today's episode. Thanks for having me. And if you want Chad to create a Facebook ad for your book or you have any other projects you want to get published, our staff would love to hear from you, 877-961-6878 or info at bookbaby.com. Now stay tuned for a bonus chat with Stephen Spots. Baby President Stephen Spots mentioned to me in passing the other day that he was once at the inauguration of a different kind of president, the one in charge of the United States. And being that we're here recording in the week of Joe Biden's inauguration, I thought this was a story to be shared with everyone in a semi-regular segment we'll call Stephen's Stories. <laughs> All right. So, Stephen, you're on the grassy knoll in Dallas. What happens next? No, not quite then. I wasn't, I wasn't quite that old. But no, it was a different kind of grassy knoll in Southern Oregon, as a matter of fact. And this is back to 1976, the year of our bicentennial. And I was, I'll give my age away now, a 16-year-old with hopes of being a a journalist. In fact, my uh, viewers of this, who are probably my age and older, will understand I wanted to be Walter Cronkite and Howard Cosell jammed in together in one kind of hard-hitting journalist. So as Mr. Carter, Governor Carter at that time, I think former governor, he was uh, campaigning. He said, I'm going to be a 50-state primary president-elect or president-hopeful. And so he started campaigning. I thought, you know what? I see his campaign schedule is going to bring it to my dusty little hometown of Medford, Oregon. So I, the intrepid journalism person, the editor-in-chief of the Crater High School Comments, Thought, so by golly, I'm going to get a press accreditation. So, sent off to the campaign, a little background letter, who I am, love to be accredited to whatever events Mr. Carter's going to have in Medford. Well, it turns out that Mr. Carter was quite successful in his early primaries. So, he didn't need, the, he didn't need to actually come out to my dusty little town and campaign. So, I was given a a dear John letter saying, sorry, you know, we really appreciate, you know, your efforts, but I'm sorry, Mr. Carter's not going to be in Oregon. By the way, he lost the primary in Oregon. It went to that great esteemed statesman from Idaho, Frank Church. And uh, Carter finished second and Jerry Brown, the first one, uh, he, he finished third. So I thought, okay, darn it, journalism opportunity lost, completely forgot about it. Fast forward, Mr. Carter is elected. And lo and behold, in late December, I get an invitation. I get this this beautiful envelope from the inaugural committee from Jimmy Carter. And I thought, what is this? Must be some, you know, just thing. They're sending it out to a million people who ever contacted him. No, I opened it up. Here was the invitation. Here was tickets to many events. Here was uh, tickets from my Congress people and my senator saying, please visit them. It's the whole nine yards. So I had only a few days to decide, hey, do I, do I want to take advantage of this? So again, being the, being the um, mercenary journalist that I am, I immediately called my local newspaper and said, guess what I have? Would you sponsor me on a trip to Washington as your intrepid reporter? And they said yes. So for two weeks in Washington, D.C., I was the Medford Mail Tribune's exclusive inaugural reporter. Now, I didn't get a chance to interview Anyone really of note, I just took lots of pictures. Uh, there was a lot less security in those days, but a lot more peanuts because, of course, you know, Mr. Carter was the peanut farmer 
that we all know about. And it was a great event. You know, I attended some of the, not some of the galas, but, you know, some of the, some of the other events, went through the Capitol, you know, met our senator and met our congressman. And it was just a great event for a young 16-year-old journalist at that time. I was writing, new, you know, writing um, reports back and sending them. God, I, I forgot how I even sent them back. It was even before a fax machine. So I suppose I put it, I put it in the mail and uh, actually mailed it to them. So that was certainly my push to say, yeah, you know what? I love journalism. I love writing. I love getting the word out to people. So um, memorable event. Um, but yeah, it seems like it was just yesterday. Tomorrow with Mr. Biden, assuming it, um, we all pray for unity in this nation. It was a different time back in 1977, which is when, when the inauguration was. But uh, I pray that our country will come together and have more unification that we're all hoping for. So is that the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration period, both in person and across the globe? You know, I, it was really cold. And he did walk the length of the of Pennsylvania Avenue. You know what? Back in those days, I don't think they were counting just as much as they seem to be now. Uh, but yeah, there were a lot of people. That's for sure. I mean, it was kind of billed as the people's inauguration. So I think a ton of invites went out. And, and uh, you know, it, it was just, just a, a lot of fun. Met so many people. Uh, some people who I still actually correspond with very, very, very seldomly now. But once in a while. So just, just a wonderful event. So if there are any young intrepid writers out there who perhaps not this inauguration, a little late for that, how about the next one? You know, don't hesitate to, to write and to reach out and, and see if you can be part of the progress and, and write about it, if not a book, um, at least for your local newspaper or your school paper like I did. Any practice helps. Absolutely. And yeah, it, it was neat to see my name in bylines. And yes, I have a scrapbook. And yes, my mother was proud. And so was my father. So those were the important things back then. Uh, but no, it was just a tremendous experience. It just exposed me to, you know, here were all these other reporters who, who I was kind of working, believe it or not, elbow to elbow with as we were, you know, watching this kind of event, and that kind of event. So it really, really was eye opening to me and a lot of fun too. All right, Stephen, well, we will have to have you on for the next episode of Stephen's Stories. I have a few more to share, as you probably know. So most of them were able to be shared, too. <laughs>